Hey everyone, welcome back to the Rotten Horror Picture Show, the horror movie podcast where we talk about horror movies off of the Rotten Tomatoes list of the 200 best horror movies. Uh, my name is Clay and with me as always is Amanda. Amanda, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. Uh, it's getting hot. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's starting to sweat. Uh, getting a little gooey around the fingers. Yeah, I think I can't tell if it's the heat or if I'm just like sweating with excitement because we have to talk (laughs) about this movie today. (laughs) Because uh, today we are talking about David Cronenberg's The Fly, Mm -hmm. which is uh, has been a favorite of mine for a long time, Uh, and it's actually been a while since I've watched it. Um, I I love David Cronenberg. Um, he has one of the more interesting careers, I think, stylistically I've ever seen. He went from essentially, uh, low budget, you know, schlock. I don't even want to say schlocky because even his low budget stuff is like more cerebral than most schlock, but he basically went from low budget, uh, gross out horror movies to really cerebral yeah. stuff that he does now which is honestly not my favorite so it's been a while since i've watched a new one from him but uh what is uh what's what's your familiarity with the fly uh so i've definitely seen it in like a weird scattershot nightmarish way mm-hmm. <laughs> i don't know okay. if it's just maybe maybe i saw it for the first time a little too young and that's kind of how i recall oh. it is this one of those movies where you kind of thought for a long time you dreamt it yeah, because I have a few of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah I had yeah. for uh, Legend with uh, Tom Cruise. I thought for a long time I had dreamt that movie because I remember the fir- the only I had only seen a bit of it, and yeah. when I was like really really young, and it was the part where uh, Tim Curry as the devil steps out of the mirror for the first time, and so I saw like oh. that that like two to three minutes of the movie was the only thing I had ever seen for about fifteen years, and so I just assumed that it was my child brain doing something really intense, but. Yeah, yeah, I had a I had a similar like I have viv- very vivid memories of him of uh, Jeff Goldblum's character in The Fly uh after he starts to transform and and mm. and is sort of like getting pretty gross like him him crawling up the walls and stuff like that like that whole sequence where he's like look at me I'm getting pretty good at it like I yeah. remembered that really vividly <laughs> but did not really realize that that was actually in this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You just you just put that together of like in your brain. It's like, well, I feel like there should be like a middle section, right? Where before he gets completely gross, and like after he decides he has a, a disease. Yes, yes, and I think this movie might be where my uh, my gross out hatred of anything that has to do with fingernails comes from. Yeah, definitely. If you I, if you see this movie yeah. early enough, that will that'll definitely stick with you. I think this was it for me. Yeah, it's the same reason why I don't like it when people puke on donuts before they eat them. <laughs> you don't you don't like a uh, uh, digestion going on outside of the stomach? Not, you know, if, <laughs> if that's what you got to do, that's what you got to do. I mean, everybody has something that they have to deal with in life, but it's not my personal choice. Let's put it that way. <laughs> anyway, uh, we'll play the trailer real quick and then we'll come back and talk about it. I think you're making a mistake. I think you really want to talk to me. Sorry, I have three other interviews to do before this party's over. Yeah, but they're not working on something that'll change the world as we know it. They say they are. Yeah, but they're lying. 
There is a limit, even to the imagination. Human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. Where our greatest creations meet our deepest fears. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. You are about to go beyond that limit. weird hairs that were growing out of your back I, I had them analyzed but they were definitely not human if you saw how scared and angry and desperate he is I'm sure typhoid Mary was a very nice person too when you saw her socially no you're afraid to be destroyed and recreated aren't you you're changing Seth everything about you is changing oh no what's happening to me am I dying I want to know what's going on what does the disease want? It wants to turn me into something else. Oh, no. A fly got into the transmitter pod with me that first time when I was alone. Don't go back to it. It could be contagious. Uh, I'm afraid. Don't be afraid. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. So, David Cronenberg's The Fly, number 71 on Rotten Tomatoes' list of the 200 best horror movies of all time. It's got a 92% rating with an adjusted score of 97.955. Wow. Directed by David Cronenberg, written by Charles Edward Pogue and David Cronenberg. I'm going to say heavily rewritten by David Cronenberg, if I had to guess. (laughs) Probably. Starring Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis, John Getz. And at least one inside-out animal. So, uh, Amanda, what happens in this movie? When scientist Seth Brundle completes his teleportation device, he decides to test its abilities on himself. Unbeknownst to him, a housefly slips in during the process, leading to a merger of man and insect. Initially, Brundle appears to have undergone a successful teleportation, but the fly's cells begin to take over his body. As he becomes increasingly fly-like, Brundle's girlfriend is horrified as the person she once loved deteriorates into a monster. Yeah, they they undersell the monster monstrosity. I think of it in that. These, but that's these summaries usually kind of gloss over a lot. I was wondering wh- how much they were going to get into it, but that was like <laughs> that kind of makes it sound like a period romance drama, which I'm not convinced that this isn't actually. But Pride and Prejudice and Brundle flies. Yeah, hey, I'd, I'd read that. Uh, some of the things that you might see in this movie include seem, a seemingly endless, sorry, a seemingly endless supply of baboons, yep. a plot-dependent bipolar ex-boyfriend. Oh yeah, the worst gastropub you've ever been to, <laughs> and I know this is a stretch, but I have a defense for it: questionable parenting. Now, okay, really, a few years later, yes, a few years later. After this movie came out, they made a sequel called The Fly 2. And the main character of The Fly 2 is the child of Gina Davis's character and Jeff Goldblum's character. So. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm going to say this. I, I'm, I'm stretching this string as thin as it can possibly go in order to keep this up. <laughs> but if we're talking about just 
inside the body of this movie, uh, it's probably the first one where we can't actually say questionable parenting. So I'm I'm just gonna uh, cheat and say that it still counts. I I mean on on that basis with that justification, I guess I guess if we're gonna cheat, this is the one to cheat on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what's actually nice about this <laughs> is yes. that yes, Clay, tell me. Questionable parenting has been such a constant. Uh, this is the this is the most I've had to stretch for this. Cause like before, because it became a trend because it was legit a uh, a trend that was happening. Yes, yeah. uh, with the exception of maybe like the innkeepers, which we kind of you know stretched it a bit, even though there were yeah. questionable parents in that film. It didn't really didn't really count. This is the first one where. It doesn't lean on any sort of parental um, abuse. Maybe abuse isn't the right word, but like there's no clear line drawn to any sort of parental figures. Uh, you could argue that the parental figures are the characters in this movie. That was what I was. Go- a- that was what I was going to point out. Is that it's interesting yeah. because you're you're right in that it doesn't. There's no attempt to justify who the characters in this movie are and the choices they make based on their upbringing, which Mm -hmm. is something I think we've seen a lot in a lot of these other movies. However, however, a lot of this movie is about parenthood and like what, what it means and should you do it and, and all of that. Yeah. There, there is a really, um, you know, and we could probably get into it more a little bit later, but it's really interesting how, this movie kind of really straddles the line between schlocky monster movie and actually really um, uh, effective tragedy. Yeah. Um, and and where those things overlap, I find really interesting because you get uh, – well, first, let's talk about a little bit of the uh, the background and whatnot because you've got – this was a Mel Brooks production <laughs> of a remake <laughs> of yep. – a movie from 1958 or something also yeah, called yeah. The Fly. Very, 58. Very, very famous uh, horror movie from the 50s. Vincent Price, guy turns herself into a fly. Um, great movie. Also on the list, so we'll, we'll be watching that one eventually. Awesome. Uh, unless it unless it lands on one, unless it moves to one of the numbers yeah. we've already done. <laughs> or disappears entirely. Who knows? Yeah, that's also a possibility. Um, and it's in the director, David Cronenberg is known for kind of high concept uh body horror essentially and oh, yeah. he's not he's not a I wouldn't say his movies are funny really at all um and they are fairly serious explorations of disgusting things at least at this time they were <laughs> yeah and so you put you putting and he's he he worked prime for the most part up to this point he was doing uh movies that were at least partially funded by the Canadian government because oh. they have a big they have a big film um i don't know what the word is uh subsidies program where they give the government gives a lot of money to uh to to Canadian films by Canadian filmmakers that are shot in Canada so all of his movies are are made in Toronto oh okay um <clears throat> and so he's kind of like I always put him in the same basket as uh, David Lynch, sort of, um, where they are not really mainstream filmmakers. David Lynch is more of an art house guy. Cronenberg is is 
at this time anyway, I wouldn't call him an art house guy. He's more of like a sophisticated grindhouse guy, if that makes yeah. sense. No, it does. Because there's something very like embodied about the things that he that he does and that he's kind of concerned with. Like they're all very yeah. physical. Whereas yeah, they, David Lynch is a little more. Uh, I, I mean, I, I hesitate to use the word spiritual because I think it sounds very cliche, but that's mm-hmm. the, kind of the best way I can come up with it. Yeah, it's kind of like David Lynch is is concerned with the horrors of the mind and David Cronenberg is concerned with the horrors of the body, essentially. Yes. Yeah. Like like David Lynch is concerned with the sort of horror of realizing uh, sort of the society around you and and the the ways the world can sort of grind you down, Mm, whereas Cronenberg is very interested in the horrors of realizing that you are a physical body in a physical world. Yeah, it's like it's like very early in his life, someone described to young David Cronenberg the concept of what cancer is, and that just like <laughs> broke his brain because or he he's... had some like early <clears throat> sexual experience where like he threw up on the person or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, something even that basic where it was just like, oh no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know his movies are are they're usually like explorations of. I hesitate to say physical deformities. It's usually like the the body, uh, the your body is the monster. Essentially, it's, yeah, it's usually like a, some it's, sort of like. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna. I, I think I think a good word for it is betrayal. Like it's yes, like when your bo- good, your yeah. own body betrays you. Yeah, whether or not it's coming from within or it's an external thing being put into your body, like in his first movie, Shivers. It's it's that's the mm. case and. Uh, but yeah, it's he's very a very visceral, um, heady, disgusting kind of filmmaker. <laughs> at least at this time. Yeah. Um, and so you put him together with Mel Brooks to do this remake of this kind of campy at this point science fiction horror movie from the fifties. Um. I don't think a lot of people expected this. I mean, if you knew David Cronenberg, you did. But (laughs) it's just an interesting (laughs) choice for him. Kind of like how around the same time or a couple years earlier, David Lynch does Dune, which is very much not, does not feel like a David Lynch movie. And it it shows when you watch it. Um, Doing, using uh, a remake of a 50s horror movie as your step into mainstream filmmaking doesn't seem like a a natural fit for Cronenberg, but uh, he really digs into the awful, horrible concept of what this story is actually about and turns it from, oh, yeah, it's a guy with a fly head into this really um, thoughtful uh, exploration of, of, you know, uh, disease and um passing things on to other generations and like Mm -hmm. there's abortion stuff going on in here and you know it it is very much your uh, about your body rebelling against you and and this idea that there's a there's a monologue in this movie or it's i wouldn't it's it's short so i don't know if i'd call it a monologue but there's a point where goldblum's character kind of um freaks out a little bit and starts like saying stuff about the flesh and blah 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 and that that's like if you if you took one of those uh those like twitter handles where they're like we f- we took a robot <laughs> and had it 
watch yeah. a thousand hours of David Cronenberg <laughs> movies and then I wrote this script. That's yes. the thing it would spit out. Is <laughs> that, that stuff that he says? Absolutely true. You have to listen to me. You're afraid to dive into the plasma pool, aren't you? You're afraid to be destroyed, recreated, aren't you? I bet you think that you woke me up about the flesh, don't you? But you only know society's straight line about the flesh. You can't penetrate beyond society's sick, gray fear of the flesh. Drink deep or taste not the plasma spring. See what I'm saying? No, I'm just talking about sex and penetration. I'm talking about penetration beyond the veil of the flesh. A deep, penetrating dive into the plasma pool. But it's uh, he, he he goes deeper than that and gets into this idea of like it's not it's not Seth Brundle and a fly like Seth Brundle didn't absorb the fly he's now a third being right uh, a a new creature and it's it's just a really he really takes this concept and just rings as much out of it as you possibly can I'm sorry I talked for a very long no time. <laughs> I mean I think I think we can tell how much you really enjoy this movie. I love it. I think yeah. it's great. Well, and I, I think something that it's interesting, um, you know, talking about the, the 1958 version of this with Vincent Price, um, I think it's interesting to look at that movie, like th- sort of the evolution from that movie to this movie, mm-hmm. especially when you add in uh, Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis. Sure, yeah. Because that's all about, you know, Gregor Samsa wakes up and he's a cockroach. Mm-hmm. And it's another, you know, man transforming into an insect. Gregor said he's the mountain, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Stannis Baratheon is the bad boyfriend in this. Rice, yes. Yeah, that's right. yeah. All right, we're all on the same page now. <laughs> um, but but I, I feel like Cronenberg, for all of his sort of, um, all of the, the sort of visual horror he brings to it, he kind of brings this back to that Kafka-esque like uncanny and and like the psychological horror of it he does kind of bring it back to that whereas like the 1958 version of the fly is more of that just like oh no it's a man with a fly's face for a head right right um yeah and what's actually really interesting about this is they actually walk the line really interestingly between David Cronenberg uh, exploration of the horrors of this idea and also like it being a remake of a, of a campy monster movie. Cause there are, you kind of like swerve back and forth. You start the movie with this big, like uh, horror movie score uh, yeah. three note, you know, chord progression thing that feels very much like an old classic monster movie. I think, the, I think Howard Shore did the music. Mm. Yeah, Howard Shore did a, a lot of David Cronenberg stuff. And then he went on to do the music for Lord of the Rings. Oh. Um, and uh, so you've get, you start off with this sort of like old monster movie feeling, but then it gets into the more modern uh, physicality and body horror stuff. And then it sort of turns back into a monster movie towards the end oh, when yeah. you've got him like busting through the window and scooping, <laughs> scooping up Gina Davis and jumping Carrying off. Carrying her across and then, the rooftops. <laughs> yeah. And then the boyfriend has to go, go save her. And then, you know, it, it, it turns kind of into like King Kong a little bit at the end. Yeah. Or Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Absolutely. I was actually going to bring up that I feel like this is 
Seth Brundle is probably the most sympathetic movie monster I th- I can think of since Frankenstein, because he really is sort of the uh, a similar kind of of creature who is. I mean, he he is the way he is because of his own failings as a person, but mm-hmm. they do paint him with this unbelievable uh, uh, pathos that it's really hard not to feel bad for him. Like when, yeah. instead of him going completely crazy at the end and just turning into a monster and like, you must be one of us, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> he he goes after Gina Davis because he's, he's like, I you can't kill this baby because she gets pregnant. Right. Uh, you can't kill this baby <laughs> because it might be the only thing left of Seth Brundle. Like there, he's, it, he's now this other thing. He knows he's going to die and this this child that she she's trying to get rid of might be the only piece that's left of him uh, as he once was or, or, or as he is now. And it's just real like that little bit brings, gives you enough uh, really hooks you in to be, to not understanding why he's do Cause he's obviously a, a crazy <laughs> monster, but like there's, right. there's enough there to grasp onto where it is. It's incredibly tragic. Yeah. And, and I think, I think something that works well is that like you were saying he sort of ends up in this in this situation because of his own failings as a person mm. but none of his failings are so enormous or so horrific that they're not relatable right like, I, like so... his yeah his failings are very like we all we all have had those moments like we've we've all had those moments of either whether you want to say it's hubris, like he, he believes too much in his own genius and his own invention, mm-hmm. or if mm-hmm. it's jealousy because he's jealous of Veronica's ex sort of ex sort of not ex boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Um you know, like like it, it's all very like we we've all been there. We've all had those nights where there's somebody you're like, you're super into them and you're not sure how they feel about you and they do or say something that leaves you feeling insecure so you you drink a little too much or you Mm -hmm. do something that's out of character for you otherwise it's very relatable it's very normal oh definitely and i do you know i think that kind of it kind of brings me to the point where i think is the weakest part of the movie because one of the things i love about it is it's very economical Right. Yes. They, there's no fucking around with this yeah. movie. It starts there. There's literally there's essentially only three people in the movie. There's yeah. uh, Veronica, Seth Brundle and Stathis Boren, which is going to be the weirdest. That's the weirdest <laughs> character name I've it ever come across. Such a weird name. It's I don't even know. I would. Has, is there anybody in the world whose name is Stathis? <laughs> there has to be. Right. I guess. I mean, I. I it had to have come from somewhere, right? I guess. Anyway, so there, there's like a couple <laughs> other characters who have like very, very minor parts. There's a, a girl who may or may not be a hooker. Um, there's a doctor Tawny. who has a couple lines. Tawny, excuse me. Uh, there's a doctor who has a couple lines. Okay, if I didn't, I, I was going to, I know his name is <laughs> Seth Brundle and I was calling him Jeff Goldblum's character. So don't, I know, don't, I know, I know. Don't get on me for not knowing the, <laughs> one the of, fifth person down the list who has three one lines. One of the, the other movie. themes of this podcast has been, I remember the names. Yeah. You names aren't not. important. They're not important. <laughs> um, but, you know, they have, they have minimal lines, but the, the main, yeah. there's really only three characters in this movie. And yeah. I think the, 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 the biggest failing is that the element that causes him to go to 
you know, jump into the the thing uh, and and try the the teleportation thing on himself feels kind of flimsy to me because it is so economical. He meets Veronica right away. They very quickly get into what's going on. They very quickly get into a relationship. Mm-hmm. We were joking as we were watching it, like how how long have they been together? It's <laughs> right, like, like a two week weeks. and a half. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and he's. They're reacting as though they're in this like committed relationship. And mm-hmm. then she goes, she doesn't even like real, like he doesn't know that she, she and Stathis Boren are together. Really? Or were. Or were, or were, sorry, yes. Yeah. And so she goes off and has to do this thing. And he kind of just gets hammered and decides to throw away his entire life's work. Because he, because he's kind of possibly jealous about maybe a boyfriend. Like it's for for that kind of character, he seems a little bit. All of that stuff seems a little bit too flimsy for me. Um, and I guess that's probably just because it's so economical that they don't have a lot of time to really do anything more. I don't know. I don't know what the the fix is there. Yeah, I I, I don't know if it's. I agree with you. Um, I do think that it is like kind of a thin. Uh, plot point where it's just mm-hmm. sort of like, all right, we got to hurry up and get him in this thing somehow. Like, I feel like there's, if, if you're gonna, if you're gonna do that, there's maybe like easier ways to, to sort of do that. Um, or have them like actually get into a fight or something, you know? Cause it's not like she leaves on, they don't part on negative terms at that moment that would cause him to like, get really drunk and be like ah fuck her i'm gonna show i'll show her i've got to do it myself you know what i mean like it's (laughs) just it's a very benign night that i I mean ends with him doing something incredibly rash so i i would say it's maybe i could i could maybe justify it a little bit by saying it, it maybe seems benign like but if you think about it if it is this sort of whirlwind romance mm-hmm um, where it has only been like two weeks or whatever. Um, cause e- even in the movie, I don't think the movie gives a really clear, uh, timeline, but even in the movie, right. you get, you get the sense that it's been a fairly short amount of time. Um, right. So at that point, it's all so new and so fresh and so exciting, but you also don't really know the person yet. Right, right. So there's like a level of insecurity there that I, I would buy, but I just wish that there was more of a like even if if there had been like more of like a love letter or something, like mm-hmm. something that just sort of implied more heavily that she and uh Stannis Baratheon um <laughs> were still involved. Like beyond just a like, oh here's an envelope from your boss that says from right. the desk of Stathis, whatever. Like, it's also still her boss. I mean, he doesn't even. He could just assume Stathis Boren is some sort of like pharmacy or something. Right, right. It, it's it's because it, it is, sounds like a drug. <laughs> it really does. It sounds like a pharmaceutical company. Um, but speaking of speaking of that character in general, he is, as you said in in your list of of uh, things you'll find in this movie, he as a character is so like. Thin isn't quite the right word. He he's he just like he is whatever the plot or the movie right. asks him to be at that moment. Like there's yeah, he's no very much a device. Yeah, there's no like integrity to him as a character, except 
I guess maybe you could argue his focus on Veronica is is really mm. the only constant in him as a character. Yeah, because I, I was going to ask you, why do you think he is played, he is such a creep in the story? Because there's really no reason for him to be such a creep other than for him to be, uh, to push back on Veronica because she's with St- uh, Seth. Yeah. But even so, I mean, like, I he he's a, he's a real, he's like, following her to the store oh he's stalking a her scene. yeah he's stalking her he's showing up at her house and taking a shower because he's just to, it's like as a a power move because he's still yeah. gonna key to her house like i i don't know and given how he as you're saying uh because the plot requires him to how he really turns on a dime and becomes like this for lack of a better term hero i wouldn't call him a hero but he kind of ends up playing that role like when seth starts getting really bad and the pregnancy thing starts happening she turns to stathis and stathis is like very calm and reasonable about the entire thing and and is actually kind of good to her yeah definitely and so it's i I, sorry i was saying and so it's it's really weird that he is played so uh toxically at the beginning and then when when it when Veronica needs someone to lean on, they just start playing him as like this trusted friend. Totally, and and like for I think the only way I can see why the movie and, and the writers and and the director and everybody made the, that choice is that he he is beyond consistently. Um, focused on Veronica, he is mm-hmm. also consistently the counterpoint to Seth. Mm-hmm. So when at the beginning of the movie, Seth is sort of this like kind of nerdy, kind of dorky, but seemingly like very sweet, if a little oblivious scientist. Mm-hmm. Uh, what the? Stathis, Sath, whatever his name is. <laughs> um, now who can't remember character names? It's not a real name. It's oh, not a real insulted. name. you just insulted. You just insulted every one of our listeners named Stathis. <laughs> All zero of <laughs> Throwing if, an entire name's worth of people under the bus. If anyone is listening to this and your name is Stathis, please let us know. <laughs> yes, please do. <laughs> I will give you a personal apology. <laughs> um, but, but, so... Stathis is is this sort of like monstrous example of toxic masculinity at the beginning when Seth is sort of this like nice kind of nebbishy like unassuming dude and then mm-hmm. they swap places Sure, sure. And and it's it's for Seth it makes sense because he's undergoing this transformation and he all of this is happening to him that makes sense. It's out of his control. Mm-hmm. For Stathis, it makes zero sense. Right. It makes yeah. no sense how he goes from this just kind of gross, domineering, aggressive, controlling, rude person to mm. this fairly, like you said, he, you know, when she comes to him for help and she's freaking out. He stays very calm. He pulls some strings to try and get her a, like a doctor's appointment in the middle of the night. 
Yeah. Uh, he's driving that, her around. He's like, I was he, thinking, I was thinking, uh, maybe he's not that good a guy in the end. Cause he clearly <laughs> knows where to go to get a late night emergency abortion. It's not the first time he's done this, I think. But in the late eighties, like that, that's not illegal, you know, like right, he's, right. he's taking her to a legitimate doctor in a hospital, like a nice looking hospital. He's not like back out. As far as we know, her. it could have been a veterinary place. I don't know. <laughs> we don't know where she went. True. Very, very true. Um, but yeah, it's just it, it's it's like where whereas the reversal and the transformation from like romantic lead and hero into the monster slash villain is very earned for Seth. It's not earned for Stathis. Like right. It's it's it's. I do like how at the very end he he despite his like injuries like f- helps finish him off. But mm-hmm. it's just the whole transformation for him from this like. Yeah, gross stalker into like the guy who's gonna like support you no matter what just makes no sense. Yeah, and you know, watching it this time, um, it's oh god, I can't remember the last time I watched it. Um, but <laughs> I, it's the first time I've like sat down and really watched it in a very long time. And so, yeah. you know, it's the year's twenty twenty. You have different things present in your mind as far as character relationships and how sure. different characters are written and gender dynamics and all that kind of stuff. And I was thinking going into the like climax of this movie, I, I, I was like, oh, no, is Gina Davis just going to become like a damsel in distress character? Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like, oddly enough, the one of the reasons that they write Stathis the way they do in the second half of the movie is to make sure that Veronica still has agency over what's going on. Yeah. Because I feel like you very easily could have gotten into this thing where Stathis, the toxic guy who is uh, the head of this, the the editor-in-chief of the science magazine, is trying to convince her to keep the baby because of what it would mean for, like, the story she could write. You know, some shit like that. Yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. But ver- it's very much not that. It's very much, okay, what do you want to do, Veronica? And Veronica's like, I need this out of me now. And he's like, okay, I will will help make that. Like, there's no, she maintains all of the agency over what happens to her, uh, the, the, for lack of a better term, thing that might be growing inside of her. Yeah. And even, even at the end when she gets uh, kidnapped and uh, Faye Raid to an extent. Yeah. (laughs) um, When Stathis shows up with the shotgun, he is immediately taken off the board in a, absolutely disgusting manner by Brundle who just oh yeah ass, acid vomits all over his hand and, devo- yep. and dissolves his hand and then acid vomits all over his ankle and essentially cuts his foot off and, yep. and he has he has the the actor who plays Stathis has the most unique reaction to that happening I can I've ever seen in a movie because like he <laughs> he definitely goes the opposite way you'd think where Generally, you'd think, okay, I just got uh, my hand has been burned off and my leg has been burned off. I'm going to scream like a maniac. But he, like, actually internalizes it. And you can, like, see him (laughs) dealing with what's not just the fact that he's lost his hand and his leg, but that this half man, half fly thing just acid vomited all over him to, to 
burn his limbs off. And he's, it's almost like he, he doesn't scream because he can't believe what's happening. I, I actually it's a think very it's a unique reaction, but I think it's kind of a great choice. Oh, it is. It's great. Yeah. yeah like, as like, like from it, from an, a standpoint of like appreciating the performance. I really loved that. Like I love, yeah. I loved that he had that reaction. Cause it is something that like you could imagine, like you're just in so much shock that none of it is processing really. Yeah. And it's oddly like almost emasculating because yeah. he doesn't scream. He just kind of like faints. He, he kind of keeps yeah. it to himself and then he goes, and he just sort of falls over. Well, and, and, and going, oh, sorry. Nope. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say going, going along with what you were saying about Veronica uh, keeping her agency throughout the whole movie. The only reason that uh, Brundle doesn't kill Stathis is that she says she, she asks him to stop. She says, please don't. Right. So she saves his life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And from from that point on, they take Stathis off the board until essentially the end where he he does he does play a part in saving her. But ultimately, the it's not he doesn't kill the monster and then like they don't fade. The the music doesn't swell. Yeah. Yeah. Fade out. He clutches her against him and they kiss like, no. Yeah. He (laughs) saves her from being. Uh, fly potted but the actual <laughs> dispatching of the monster and like that whole final scene um, after Stathis gets vomited on is <laughs> is between uh, Veronica and, and Brundle until Brundle turns into his final form there yeah um, and then she's ultimately the one that kills him and it's it's yeah I feel like his his handling is very much to make sure that she maintains her her level of agency and make sure that she doesn't just become a a uh, a piece in the in the climax of the story, you know. Yeah, definitely. Like this is this is very minor, but one of the things I really loved about uh Veronica as a character, there's that moment where she's talking to Seth Brundle and She's like explaining her background with Stathis, and mm-hmm. in, in in a in a different movie, her sort of saying, "Oh, he was a professor and I was a student." There would be like a predatory level to that, where mm-hmm. it's like, "Oh, he took advantage of her when she was young." Ugh, gross. Like, oh god. But there's there. He, she explains that, and and talks about her history with him, and then how they broke up. And Seth says to her is he still in love with you? Mm. And she just goes, why wouldn't he be? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I just, I loved that. Cause it was so like, he didn't take advantage of me. It was a mutual relationship. We both got something out of it. I've moved on. He hasn't. And it's like, right. she's not trying to like sugarcoat it or like protect his ego from afar. She's just very much like, yeah, of course he still is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she's a really she's a really interesting character cuz she doesn't have as much screen time as you'd think she would cuz mm-hmm. she kind of disappears for pieces and and as they focus on Brundle and stuff. But the stuff that she does have to do, she is written as a very uh uh to, I don't I hate I don't want to use the term strong female character cuz it gets <laughs> tossed around so much. But she's a she's a well-written character. There's a lot to yeah. her. More, there's a lot more to her than just oh she's the she's the girl who is there to see the experiment so we can see the experiment you know right and and she's she's just as flawed as the rest of them 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Which is, I think, a very important point is that, like, she is part of the reason, whether she realizes it or not, that things have escalated to this point. Because before Mm -hmm. he met her, Seth never would have thought about putting himself through the teleporter. Right. He does it in large part to impress her. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, and also kind of like a as a fuck you to her, I think too. But <laughs> oh yeah, but 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 she, definitely, but she's definitely like pushing him towards it faster sure. than he otherwise would have. Sure. Um, and also, I think you know, I might be treading into dangerous ground here, but they're uh-oh. fictional characters, so whatever. <laughs> I I feel like the relationship with her and Stathis is kind of portrayed in such a way where she's not entirely doing everything she could to shut him down. If that makes sense. Like, I'm not saying that she's inviting his, his creepiness and his, uh, his whatnot, but like the fact that he shows up at her apartment, she's kind of like moderately fine with it. Like she's not as, as she doesn't react as strongly as I think one would. Yeah, you know, that's I, fair. there's just there's a there's a little bit there where it's like I I I feel like there's again I'm not I'm not blaming her for him being a creep, but it it, it does seem like there is some unresolved stuff there. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. I th- I think at first it's kind of difficult to tell how much of it is just like you know, women are typically kind of taught to be accommodating and like Mm -hmm. oftentimes it's sort of like, well, he doesn't mean anything by it. Oh, he's just doing anything. It's like cute or whatever. I'll just, I don't want to make him upset. I don't want to make him angry. That's true. You could, you could look at it that way too. Yeah. I I know. I think I know where you're going with that. Yeah. Yeah, And then there's the, the, also the fact that that's her boss. Right. Yes. So there's like a power dynamic there. At least I'm talking about, you know, the first act or so of the movie. Um, with with you yeah. know, it, I it's... take back I take back everything I said because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I am now I am now remembering those scenes where he's basically like threatening her job and stuff and like yeah yeah maybe yeah. she's <laughs> but, <laughs> she's but probably also, just I understand where you were coming from though because later on she she goes to him immediately like there's right. no there's no calling your mom or your best friend or you know the nice lady who lives next door like she goes straight to him for help mm-hmm. so there is still clearly a level of of she trusts him with this you know yeah and, and, yeah. and so i'm 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 not trying to completely steamroll what you just said but i think no, it just it goes you're to right me. too <laughs> <laughs> but i think Cause, it's yeah because all- i was just gonna say you know in, in the time where this was made to like uh, we were talking about i said you know she's gonna file quite an hr report and I don't know if uh, uh, if Greg was being serious, but he said HR didn't exist till 1989. Is that true? I, no. I I don't he know. Was... I've never worked an office job in my life. He was he was being facetious. Okay. Well, regardless, it he was will a be different... very happy that you thought he was serious. Though I take everything he says as literal truth. <laughs> oh and I man! I always have. I always. Oh have. no! You're going to have some serious misconceptions. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, it's a different time than we are in now Absolutely. and there definitely is a different power dynamic um present in this movie than i mean i'm sure this stuff does still happen obviously but there's a yeah. i think that her reaction to it probably is very much in the kind of 
uh, for lack of a better word, traditional sense of you just kind of have to make sure that they that you get out okay, but don't push back so hard that they go fly off the handle, which is right, not the way you should what you should not the way things should be, but you know. Right, but that's I mean very much the way it was and and very often still is where it's sort of like Right. Yeah, ex- exactly what you said, you know, do enough to make sure that you can get out of the situation, but don't go exactly, so far yeah. as to offend. Right, right. It's one thing if right. you sort of jokingly like maybe you're kind of mean to him, but you're mean in like a teasing way. That's mm-hmm. fine, but to just be like fuck you, I'm calling the cops. Mhm. Then you're in trouble. Which is such a double-edged sword, because you know guys, if you're mean to them in a sarcastic, teasing way, they're going to think you're flirting with them. I mean, that's so how just, I ended up with Greg. I know. That's what he told me, and I took it as literal truth. Just mean to him for days. <laughs> um, but, you know, to, to, to backpedal a little little bit uh, and talk about that, the, that moment that I felt was kind of weak, I was thinking about it, and I think what maybe they should have done or could have done because I thought this is what happened in my head. I think because it makes so much sense is um, when she shows up to his place, I think what should have happened is Seth has opened that package. And so he sees the cover of the magazine Ah. and because early, obviously he doesn't, he didn't want her to do a, a story on him. He gets very upset about that. So right. I, fi- I, I was thinking, oh, if he sees the magazine, he blows up at Veronica about it. They get into a bit of a fight. She leaves to go deal with Stathis and, and this thing. And so now he's already mad at her or he's mad at the situation and they've just been in a fight. And he's also dealing with the concept that this guy might have been you know, might still be, has definitely or might still be sleeping with Veronica. So right. I feel like then he's got enough fire there for him to really, uh, and even when he gets drunk, it just means he like downs four glasses of champagne really fast. Like it's not, <laughs> he doesn't really have time to get drunk. <laughs> I know. Yeah. That would be but like that, that. Yeah. That would be so much more, that would just be a much tighter way of accomplishing the same End. especially in that scene because this scene itself is pretty benign because the package is there and he's like oh yeah that, that oh, guy dropped it off you. and she's like yeah she's like oh uh i gotta go deal with something i'll be back and he's like well well that was all right see ya yeah like, I, gotta there's, get, there's, I gotta get drunk with his baboon now yeah for for a movie that is is so economically written and structured it's kind of a missed opportunity i think to really you know twist the screws on on the drama a bit yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. But I will say, like, in, in terms of, you know, this movie being economically structured, it's interesting when I look, because I, I never would have drawn any comparisons between this movie and something like The Innkeepers mm-hmm. uh, had we not started this podcast. Um, <laughs> That's what we're here to do. Just drawing connections all over drawing- the place. Tenuous, the most tenuous connections possible, (laughs) just so I can get a bit out of it. Absolutely. Um, But, but like, this, it's kind of shown me that something that I think you and I both appreciate over many of these films is that the ones where they just sort of cut out the fat and just get to Mm. it. Yeah. Um, Well, you know, I think there's a difference because I think. 
I think there's getting to it, which is which is me like, ah, oh, this movie's seventy five minutes long. The monsters there from the first scene doesn't make any sense, but you know, like oh, yeah. that, <laughs> no. which I, is not what I'm talking, what I think we're talking no, no, about. No, no, no. But there is like, yeah, there's definitely we do definitely appreciate. I think the uh, the ones that yeah they they stick to the stuff that matters and they really lean into that stuff as much as possible. Yeah, for me, for me as somebody who is an editor in like my professional life i appreciate it just in editorial terms of Mm. like somebody took a look at this whole story like the whole thing everything we've got and they looked at it and they said what do we really need to know what do we need to know what do we need to show the audience and and what do we have that's maybe we find it interesting or it's sort of the typical way of doing things so it's in there but you don't really need it for the sake of the effectiveness of the story and like what can we sort of sift out in that way to just give the audience what actually matters to the plot of the movie and to the themes and the things you're trying to develop without it becoming like it's sort of like when we talked about a quiet place Mm mm-hmm and you were saying how you were glad they didn't have like a ton of backstory about where the monsters came from and and sort of how they ended up like you know mm. destroying society like we didn't really need all of that for the sake of that story we just needed to know the very basics of these monsters are here they're killing people this family is trying to survive right like i mean if you look at the way this movie starts He's telling her about the teleportation thing, like it, within five minutes of the movie starting. Essentially, mm-hmm. like they—that's that party scene uh, that it starts with. They they meet and they're gone very very quickly. And yeah. I feel like a lot of other movies would start that with like Veronica at the magazine office talking to Stathis, getting. Uh, him telling her to go to the party or something or there'd be more of a build-up between them meeting and leaving together but it's like nope uh very quick hi i'm seth hi i'm veronica this is what's going on i gotta show you this really cool thing and then within like five minutes he's explaining the teleportation thing um yeah and they even and when it ends too it's not like i feel like absolutely if this movie is made now oh there is some sort of denouement scene yes where Either she is successfully getting an abortion or something, or you know, like there's, or she's it's or, nine months later and she's having ex- the baby. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, but in this one, it's as Roger Corman used to say: uh, "You kill the monster and then you run the credits." Yeah, yeah, and it very much is that. I mean, she shoots him. There's a moment where she gets to be upset, and she and Stathis sort of stand there, and then it just goes black, and the credits start. Yeah. 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 And the first credit that we get is uh, for the special monster effects, which is uh, let me I have the guy's name right here real quick. Uh, Chris Wa- Chris Wallace Inc. Um, the des- who is the designer or the group that designed the Brundlefly creature. Oh my and, god! Um, it is a fantastic. Uh, it deserves to be the first credit on the screen because yeah. it is. It is the star of the movie. 
Which is interesting because we've spent a lot of time so far talking about Stathis and Veronica. And I very, know, yeah. <laughs> very little time talking about uh, Seth Brundle or the Brundlefly. Right, yeah. Which, you know, I think is... I think that's good because it means that there's a lot of stuff <laughs> going on other than, wow, wasn't that cool when he turned into a fly? Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, definitely. And it's... But- it's it's also I find it I find it funny because I can as you as you have pulled certain things about what we like out of this I have also pulled the same things mm. uh, similar things out where it's like yeah I think you and I tend to uh, hook on to these other ideas and side concepts and like themes and stuff yeah. versus just like man wasn't that blood cool yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the monsters are great, and the monsters are definitely, like, the initial draw for me, but Mm -hmm. it's the other things you can find sort of woven in around them that that make it work. Right, right, yeah. But yeah, Brundlefly himself is is a, you know, it's a fantastic transformation that, uh, and this was 86, so this was, like, Mm -hmm. right in the golden age of practical prosthetics and an, an, animatronic effects and everything and man yeah. i actually forgot what happens at the end i forgot that he turns into that that final thing and how really? that happens yeah it's just one of those things like i i had i i remembered more or less what happens but i forgot there was that moment where his like his eyes melt and his face splits open oh yeah she like and accidentally just, pulls oh. his jaw off yes it's so good <laughs> so good I am such a mark for, you know, great monster transformation. I, I love werewolf movies. Not so much anymore because it's all CGI. But yeah. I love practical werewolf transformations and stuff like that. Or oh, like yeah. the thing. That kind of – just the, the, the creativity and, and uh, uh, the, the disgusting creativity on display in these movies <laughs> has always been a high point for me. No, definitely. And I think it, it – it, it, when you said you forgot that he becomes that sort of final form monster, I understand why, because Mm. like the transformation from the remnants of humanoid Seth Brundle into the fly, that transformation sequence is, is fantastic, Mm -hmm. but there's something so there's something so much more, uh, like remarkable and it has so much more of an impact when he's still vaguely humanoid looking but right. looks so different from the man he starts as right like yeah, once I he's think... the fly monster he sort of has entered this other category where it's just like oh yeah that's cool and like gross and, and, and a monster but there's something so iconic about him when he's still vaguely human Right. And I I think part of that or a big part of it is that you've spent the entire movie uh, watching and caring about Seth Brundle. And mm-hmm. the minute that he turns into that monster, Brundle is is completely gone. Yeah, so all you're real. left with all you're left with is is the the uh, the monster that needs to be destroyed, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Like like his his remnants of humanity are so scant at that point. That you don't, as a viewer, you don't empathize with him as much. Yes, yeah. Apparently, uh, speaking of empathy for him, I guess (laughs) there was a um, a scene that they that they cut out after a test screening, where Mm -hmm. uh, like maybe partway halfway through the movie or so, 
um, Brundle takes the the remaining baboon and a cat and puts them into the machine on purpose and sends them through. And it comes out as this monstrosity on the other end that he then beats to death with a crowbar or something. Oh my god! And apparently, <laughs> apparently they cut it out because audience were say, audiences were saying like watching him do that takes away any bit of uh, of pathos you might have for him. Um, yeah. And I think that's the right call because I think the key to this movie working is that at no point does except for you know in the early days of the transformation when when he's being all cocky and weird at no point (laughs) does he come off as like a villain he's just a very sympathetic like frankenstein he's a very sympathetic monster who is kind of the victim of the circumstance that he's in and uh um ultimately has a very tragic end yeah and even in those moments where he does come across less sympathetic you mm-hmm. you as an audience member know it's because something is happening to him. Right, right. Like like they they do such a good job early on of sort of establishing his character and the sort of guy he is that once he hits that point, you know intuitively that this is not normal. Um Right. And and so it's it's like more easily forgiven even when he is kind of an asshole. Mm-hmm. Uh whereas yeah, yeah, combining two animals and essentially sacrificing them to confirm your own very obvious fuck up. Yeah, it's also a, a fairly redundant scene, honestly. Yeah, yeah, you don't really need it. It's just it would be like it's just like an an opportunity for that amazing makeup and special effects team to build another monster. Right. Right. Uh, I, we've and we've gone all this time without even talking about Jeff Goldblum's performance, really, which I think we should probably touch on a little bit because <laughs> it's, it's uh, I actually don't. It's tough to because I don't know all the movies he's been in, uh, and it's tough to know just by looking at the the IMDb where he is in like the cast hierarchy. Mm-hmm. But I think this might be the only, or at least possibly the last movie that Jeff Goldblum was the lead in. Because he's almost always a, a side character or or a secondary character. He's uh, it, never you never see him as as the lead. I don't think it's definitely not the last one he was because Jurassic Park like two I think. Yeah, he's okay. the main character. Yeah, I guess that counts. Sorry. <laughs> well, but even even there, he's he's only the lead in that because Sam Neill didn't come back. Right. Right. <laughs> Uh, what about Independence Day? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Still, right? I, yeah, it's an ensemble, like a co- but I'll count he's it. He's like yeah, a co-lead. Sure. Yeah, but uh, basically, my point is, he he never he very rarely gets like the spotlight, right? And he gets the full spotlight in this movie, and it is well deserved because I can't think of anyone else who could play this part. Yeah, yeah. I it's tough because I don't know if I can't think of anyone else who can play this part because it's such a it's such a strange and unique part or because mm. Jeff Goldblum was so Jeff Goldblum in it right, <laughs> that right. it's impossible like anybody else if they ever tried to reboot this now anybody else trying to do this version of Seth Brundle would just come off as somebody trying to do a Jeff Goldblum impression. Right, yeah. Oh, he definitely, he took a character that is 
fairly uninteresting on the page and just brought a whole new dimension to it. Yeah. Yeah. One one of our friends that we were, uh, I, I think it may have been Laura, uh, when we were, we were chatting while we were watching this movie the other night, uh, said that it was like Jeff Goldblum toned down the Jeff Goldblum at the beginning so that he yes. could ratchet it up as he went. Yeah, I believe I believe that is actually what they did. Because if I <laughs> if I remember correctly, I think in the commentary Cronenberg talks about that where he's like, I asked I asked Jeff to dial it down in at the beginning <laughs> so later he could when he could just do his thing and dial it up to eleven, it seems like there's a change and it's not just right. you know Jack Nicholson being crazy from the beginning of The Shining. Right. Oh, that was um, going to be one of my questions to you. So uh, how much kinship do you feel with Seth Brundle? Uh, very little. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. That's comforting because for a while I felt like every uh, movie we watched with a male lead who was going slightly insane, you were having uh, a strange level of camaraderie with them. Let's see. Do I identify with Seth Brundle? Um, I mean, I also enjoy donuts quite a bit. <laughs> I think that's about it. I think you're safe. I, th- I think you're. Oh, and I mean, I mean, he's pretty good on that parallel bar, but I mean, I don't want to say I'm I'm better than that, but we, we're watching the same YouTube videos. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Do do we think that any of that was actually Jeff Goldblum? I don't think so. I I was as I was watching it, I was the thinking the extended gymnastics routine. Yeah, I, I I do remember. I think on the special features on the DVD, they do talk about it, and that it is very much not him. But uh, I was <laughs> noticing how good the double was because yeah. his body type was very very similar. Uh, the hair, it didn't look like it was a completely different head of hair. And uh, they do a good job of cutting it together to make it look like that it could possibly be. He got in shape for this movie. He either got in shape or they just covered him with enough like baby oil to make it look like he was in shape. I think he was actually in shape. But yeah, he's he puts he gives a a fantastic performance. Uh, The scene at the diner where he's, you know, Brundle flying out over the coffee and stuff is like peak peak, as as they would say in community peak gold blooming. Yes. Um, and it's just, I think he's, he's the, he's the key to this movie, uh, even, even more so than the, than the special effects. I think he's the key to this movie really working. Cause if you, if you don't get a, someone who can really make that character come off the page into something unique, it's, I feel like this movie might not have the life that it does. Um, yeah. cause Cronenberg movies, they're re- they can be really weird. And you, they don't, kinda, you don't say. Yeah. They kind of live or die by the, the lead character because if the lead isn't really good, then it, do, it doesn't really support the rest that's going on, you know? Yeah. yeah. It like uh, Scanners, the lead of Scanners, I think is he's just like a wet blanket. I don't think he's very interesting at all. He's surrounded <laughs> by great actors. Like you've got Patrick McGowan in there. You've got uh, uh, um, Michael Ironsides, mm. but the lead is just kind of this wet blanket, you know, boring guy. Yeah. Um, but then you've got like Videodrome. Where I was lead just going to say, James and on Woods. the other hand, you have James Woods. Yeah, where where James Woods' character, p- 
pretty boring in that movie. But if you get James Woods to play that character, you're instantly adding like some energy to it that wasn't there on the page. Yeah, I think that's something. That, I think that's, that's a similar similar thing here. Definitely, I think that's something also very interesting about Cronenberg in general is that he kind of similarly again to David Lynch, I would say he does a good job with having these lead actors who are very specific. Mm -hmm. Like very much unique, not kind of of a type. Like they handle those sorts of actors well, where it it sort of meshes in, like their weirdness meshes well with, with the, the actor's weirdness. Hmm. Cause yeah, it's just like when I, when I think about who else who who was like a like a big leading man name in the late eighties, like who else could have maybe tried to get this part? This part specifically, or something um, like this. Jeez, uh, not I don't think Tom Cruise would be going out for the fly. <laughs> Probably not. I mean, honestly, well, I don't think he would be great in it but i could see like nicholson doing something weird like this but i feel yeah. like he already did his way you know he did he's doing batman in 1989 so he's not averse to doing weird stuff every now and then true but but it's still it's just like there there was no like like uh, of the sort of stereotypical like leading men in any age probably like oh i got one <laughs> i just i'm on the trivia page in imdb and i just yeah control f considered to see if anything popped up um, I don't know how much of this is true. It says Richard Dreyfus turned down the role of Seth Brundle. I think oh he God. would have not been great. I no. think he would have been okay. I don't know. <laughs> but it also says Willem Dafoe was considered for the role of Seth oh. Brundle. I, I don't know if, if Dafoe has the energy to do like It's really I, he, Jeff Goldblum made this character. Yeah. It's really difficult for me to see anybody else in this role because he made it so unique. Well, and that's the thing. I think I think even if um even if Defoe had done it, it would have been a very different character in a very different movie. Yeah. It also says James Woods turned it down and uh John <laughs> Lithgow auditioned for it. What? Yeah. That's a, yeah, that's I don't, a yeah. weird mix of people. Yeah, it's a very, very different movies with any of these people. A lot of times, a lot of times, it's kind of interchangeable, and you're like, "Oh yeah, that'd be interesting." But I think anybody else playing Seth Brundle, you're you're making a different movie. Arguably Absolutely. not as good. <laughs> uh, so, oh, we didn't even mention the maggot birth scene. Oh, the nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. Which uh, I don't know if you know if you knew, but the doctor who delivers the maggot is David Cronenberg. Oh, course. I didn't. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, makes perfect sense. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I don't know what what there is to say about it. That's a great scene. <laughs> it was so. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna narc on Greg a little bit. Mm. Uh, <laughs> at one point, he leans over to me and is like, "Is this is this what abortions are like?" <laughs> I was like Yes, I, exactly. I, I I assume so. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would also like to inform you that mm. in the original draft of the script, the film ended with Ronnie falling into a coma and having a nightmare 
about giving birth to a giant maggot, but waking up in a hospital and learning she gave birth to a healthy baby boy. So exactly what we thought they would have done was what they were going to do. So, Uh And that leads us into The Fly 2. I guess, yeah, which is not a very good movie. I have not seen it, and I do not intend to. It is not as uh, lasting as the sequel to the original Fly, which is called Return of the Fly, which uh, is only notable because the Misfits wrote a song called Return of the Fly. Oh, my God. (laughs) One of my favorite choruses to any song ever, which is Return of the Fly, Return of the Fly, with Vincent Price, Return of the Fly. (laughs) Glenn Danzig, Poet Laureate of Monster Movies. Oh, my God. Um, So uh, (laughs) the placement on this list, it's number 71. Um. How do you feel about the placement for this? Uh, I, I, I feel like it's pretty close, mm-hmm. probably, to where I would put it. I might put it a little closer to 50. Sure. Okay. I, I, just because I think the whole the, the horror of the transformation from a totally normal dude into, into the fly, and then also the horror that Veronica goes through... Of a feeling probably somewhat culpable for Seth's predicament, but also then mm-hmm. thinking she is possibly pregnant with a uh, fly mutant baby. That's that's pretty intense. Like I, I I feel I feel like pretty good about where it is on the list. What about you? I do too. Yeah, I think I could be convinced to knock it up a couple places. <laughs> knock mm. it up. Uh, <laughs> that was terrible. That was unintentional. Horrible. Um, but uh, yeah, I feel pretty good. 71 is a pretty good place for it. Looking at some of the stuff that's ahead of it, mm. uh, I would definitely put it ahead of a lot of these movies. <laughs> um, interestingly enough, the original Fly is at number 47, which is very high. Yeah. I would. I think, you know, I really enjoy the original Fly. Mm-hmm. I might flip them. I might put, uh, we can talk about that more when we actually watch it, but I would put, uh, I think I might flip them and put um, Cronenberg's Fly at number 47. Like that's, that's right in that, in that area seems like a a good, a good place for me. Interestingly enough, just to show Mm -hmm. you the impact that David Cronenberg had on horror in, in the essentially the eighties and early nineties, almost every one of his movies is on this list. (laughs) Oh wow! There, it's um, I'm probably exaggerating a little bit, but just going through, if I can get my computer to work here, uh, <laughs> we've got Scanners, The Brood, Videodrome, mm. Dead Ringers, uh, Shivers, The Dead Zone, and The Fly which is basically his entire output from his first movie up until like 1992. Wow. Yeah. I wonder I wonder if he's somebody who has like the most movies on the list. That's very very possible yeah. because a lot of horror movie directors don't actually have um what's the nice way to say this? Uh a, a plethora of quality output. Yeah. For whatever reason, I don't know. But, um, yeah, it's very possible that he might have have the most on here. Um, 
Yeah, maybe he's the most consistent director we have on there. There's only two John Carpenter movies. Wow. <laughs> four Romero movies. Uh, what's another? Who's another big one off the top of my head? Um, <laughs> what about Wes Craven? Yeah, four for Wes Craven. So out of those, out of those big name guys off the top of our heads, Cronenberg has the most. So that's very interesting. Wow, that is really interesting. Huh. Well, then we have a lot more Cronenberg ahead of us. Yeah, I'm excited because I I, <laughs> I feel like sometimes he gets forgotten about. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, he does. Kind of, he's very under the radar, and it's always fun when you meet someone who just discovered David Cronenberg. Yeah, which which still regularly happens. Yeah, I remember in high in college when I discovered Cronenberg and my teacher. Uh, my sequential art teacher, who was very much a kindred spirit with me, was like, mm. you could see like how giddy he was listening to me talk about <laughs> just having gleeful. just watched Videodrome. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, um, yeah, so uh, we are at, we have come to our next wild card. Wow, already? Yeah, we, this is our uh, 15th episode coming up. Jesus. And it's my pick this time, and I was on the fence about what to do. I, I didn't know if I should go a little bit more niche or do something a little bit more well-known. And mm. we were kind of talking about it, and I'll, I think I've decided that I'm going to go a little bit more well-known. I wish it's, – it's one that I think absolutely should be on this list, and I'm kind of – I'm very sad that it's not, <laughs> and it is very much a crowd pleaser. So uh. next, next time we will be talking about uh, Return of the Living Dead. Ooh. Which is, for my money, the best non-George Romero zombie movie that's ever been made. So, uh, I'm excited. It's, yeah, have you have you seen it before? No. Really? Oh yeah. man, I'm very <laughs> excited for you to watch Return of the Living Dead. I've seen like pieces of it, but I don't think I've ever like sat down and watched the whole thing. Yeah, it's a good one. It's it's very much uh, it's very tongue in cheek. It's meant to be it's meant to be funny, um, but it's just like. It's it's a solid zombie movie that uh, uh, I think you'll probably enjoy. Nice. So, and, it, um, and is this our first foray into zombies? It is, yes. There's a distinct lack of zombies on our list up to this point, so I needed to rectify that as well. Awesome. Good choice. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see how you <laughs> feel next week when you, when you actually watch it. But uh, yeah, that's going to do it for us for The Fly. If you enjoy the show if you'd like to leave us a rating or review on itunes that would be great um and yeah so uh thanks thanks for joining us amanda yeah and uh we will see you guys next time for return of the living dead bye everybody